Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ben Stroud about his story, Three Omens of Federico de Montefeltro, which appeared in issue 23 of The Common. Ben Stroud is the author of the story collection Byzantium, which won the 2013 Story Prize Spotlight Award and the Breadloaf Writers Conference Bakeless Prize for Fiction. His stories have been published in Harper's, Zoetrope, Virginia Quarterly Review, Oxford American, Vice, and One Story, among other places, and have been anthologized in the Pushcart Prize Anthology, New Stories from the South, and the Best American Mystery Stories. He is currently Associate Professor of English and Creative Writing at the University of Toledo. Ben Stroud, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Would you set the scene for our conversation? Describe where you're living, where you're calling from now. Uh, so I'm in Toledo, Ohio, as you mentioned, uh, uh, an associate professor here at the University of Toledo. Um, I'm actually in my campus office right now, which is pretty, has, has no windows, so it's pretty, I wouldn't say bleak, but bland. Um, um, but yeah, no, Toledo is a great place, um, and that's where I've been living for the last, oh gosh, I guess, decade. Oh, wow, okay. Um, I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read those first few paragraphs for us? Sure. So, Three Omens of Federico de Montefeltro, Urbino, 1472. Aureviano held the staff high and steady as Scipio tugged at the bunches of leaves fixed to its top. He remains content, Aureviano asked the draft's keeper. He does, the keeper said. Twice since sunrise, he's moved his bowels. Aureviano watched Scipio chew. With his knobbly horns, his puzzled hide, and his great neck, he had clearly been made for a far different existence in his home beyond the Nile, a home for which even the library's grandest atlas possessed only the most rudimentary of maps. And yet, snatched from that home, confined to his pen, the animal betrayed neither alarm nor sorrow. Once Scipio finished off the leaves, Ottaviano gave the pole back to the keeper and, cutting through the stables, returned to the palace. It was near the end of July. Three weeks had passed since Batista had died, weeks in which Ottaviano had been acting as count while his brother Federico mourned the loss of his cherished second wife. No part of ruling was in Ottaviano's nature. He loathed the public life, and now especially he would prefer to be in his turret room, readying himself for another ascent. Instead, he had to sit through his mornings, receiving petitioners, entertain the envoys who had been arriving from all over Italy for Batista's funeral, and this afternoon visit an abbess to make, on Federico's behalf, the weekly inquiry into her nun's health. The sole half-hour whose loss Ottaviano didn't resent was his call on his six orphaned nieces, whose tears he attempted to dry with, his, with assurances of the bliss for which their mother's soul was traveling, and on his nephew, poor, plump Guidobaldo, as yet innocent of all that was happening around him. 
Every minute was accounted for, and even as he walked along the hallway to the privy, craving the quiet it would offer, he was grabbed by an old man, one of the six who had been attached to Batista's household, and who now pleaded for some guarantee as to his future. Only after Ottaviano told him he would have a good word for him shortly did the old man let him go. For a moment, a single moment in all the day, Ottaviano was free, but he took little comfort from this temporary freedom. Not after, last night, Federico had spoken of his three omens. A hope had been rekindled in Ottaviano, a hope the three omens might well threaten. These last weeks, despite having to attend to every care that was usually Federico's, Ottaviano had also, thanks to the grace of one of Providence's turns, focused on reviving his efforts to speak with his son, Bernardo. For ten years, Bernardo's body had been lying in its tomb. At present, his soul was likely, Ottaviano knew, in one of the far uppermost spheres. Thank you for reading that. Um, for our listeners who may not have read your story yet, would you describe what the piece is about, sort of summarize for us? Sure. So it's set um, in yeah, 1472. I'd like to back again to check that myself. Um, and it's a moment in, uh, let's see, how, how big to get here, a moment in sort of the life of Federico de Montefeltro's kind of law life in court um, after his wife has died. Um, and basically he's kind of had this moment where he's been at the height of sort of fortune or whatever, everything's been going great for him. Um, and there's this turn that's happened in his life and he's wondering, you know, is, does this mean that he needs to like do something? Is he being punished? Uh, so he's turned to his maybe brother. We might talk about that a bit later. Um, Ottaviano for help with, um, you know, how should I interpret what might be these omens and do I need to step away from ruling my, my city and my little principality? Um, and Ottaviano, at the same time, who is sort of into the occult, um, is has been trying to ascend through kind of he's a he's a hermetic. He's into I cannot pronounce I, I will boggle the pronunciation. Uh, Hermes Trismegistus' writings, um, Hermeticism, um, kind of a mysticism, um, and he's trying to reach his son who's died, um, and this requires intense concentration, um, and and he's close to finding a way to that. He thinks. Um, but if he has to take over the state, he can't. So his decision is, do I say, sure, I'll take over the state and I'll decide that, yes, these omens are true and you're right. You should step aside Federico and I'll take over and give up basically reconnecting with my son. Um, or do I decide maybe that I'm going to interpret the omens this other way so that Federico stays on and I can keep doing what I want to do and then, and kind of risk maybe causing havoc for Federico and the state and, 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 and the line, the family, basically. Um, I think that's essentially a way to encapsulate it. It's kind of, in some ways it feels hard, even though it's not that long of a story to sort of, that's, that's the heart of, of the dilemma uh, at the heart of the story. Yeah, no, that's exactly how I would summarize it. Um, I'm just so curious, how did you come to write this story? Like what inspired you to start work on it? How did it come together as a first draft? Yeah. So, um, that could take a, a, a lot. Um, <laughs> it started out, so I, w- I went to Rome, um, I guess it was about 10 years ago, um, to, to do research for something else. And then I was driving. I, took it, I, I wanted to follow a, a, an old Roman road for a particular reason. It doesn't really matter here. Um, and I'd mapped out, like, what is, this, what is the highway that matches this road? And you had to kind of get, it was not on the, like, Italian freeways. You had to kind of keep staying on the, like, small state highways. Um, and so I was driving north from Rome into um, the Adriatic Sea, um, and again, for this sort of research purpose. Um, and part of the path took you through Urbino, and I had, you know, had my guidebook, and I had been vaguely familiar with 
Federico de Montefeltro, just like somehow I had seen, I think it's just out there, like images of him. Like if you see an image, you're like, oh, I've probably seen that painting. There's like several paintings of him that are pretty well known. And there's his kind of famous studiolo. And I mean, somehow, I don't know if there's an art history class or history or whatever, textbook, something else. So I was like, I'm going to stop off here, take a look. Uh, so I got there about an hour before the palace shut down. So I got out, walked around Urbino, walked around the palace, um, and then just went back in my car and, and kept on. Um, and then years go by, and I was finishing up working on something else, and I was just thinking, about, oh, what's next? What do I want to work on? And for some reason, that visit to Urbino, you know, that kind of randomly just sort of like started to pull on me, like, oh, I think there's something here. And so I just went and got, you know, looked back through the materials I had, like I'd bought the little like guidebook or whatever for the museum. And just starting from there, and you know, getting histories and other things kind of started to zero in on like, okay, who is this person? What, what is there in his life? Is there something in here that might be a focal point for a story? And sort of kind of, as I read, finding myself to this moment, um, a lot of what's happening in the story is sort of based in like kind of historical fact. The, I mean, the omens bit is, is sort of invented, um, but the actual kind of occasion for the story and the things that have happened to Federico, um, the loss of his wife, the, the sack of Volterra, all the timing. There's even a moment where he was even writing to someone and talking about the fact that he's like, what has happened to my life? Like everything was great. He doesn't say it this way, but he's, everything was great and now it sucks, right? Like what happened? Right. <laughs> and it happened really quickly. Like it just completely turned. Um, hmm. And so for me, that was kind of like a valuable like story moment. Like, oh, this totally. is a moment where a person has undergone a great shock. Their life has completely reversed itself. That might be a way into thinking about, you know, various things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, did you... It sounds like you have something to say about this. Did you make up Ottaviano or is he a real historical character and you just sort of imagined his point of view? No, so he is real. Um, he is, um, what is tricky about him and it was tricky to address in this story is Federico's parentage is still like in dispute. Like, like who, so Ottaviano is either his brother or like they're either uncle and nephew um, or or something else. Uh, it's been a while. So I can't remember, but, but basically it's unsure because Federico was not born. Even though he became like the ruler. He was not um, um, legitimate, a legitimate child of, of the person who kind of made him his son. Um, and there's all sorts of speculation about who was, who were his real parents and, and what is Ottaviano's relationship to him. But Ottaviano is a character. Now he's much less discussed than Federico since Federico is this kind of very famous uh, personage um, in, um, this moment in history, there's stuff about him. Ottaviano, you have to kind of like find these little like footnotes or, or things about him. And this, but the fact that he was into like alchemy and into mysticism is sort of a fact. He had his own tower um, in the palace to do that. Um, and he did take over the state from time to time. He did lose a son. Um, I don't know if the circumstances are the same, but about this, I think it's the same age. Um, I think it was recorded. I can't remember. It's been an awesome that it was doing that research. So a lot of the pieces here you know, minus I like had to invent the omens, but a lot of the kind of pieces in the context were actually real. Um, or, you know, as far as I know, based on historical accounts. Okay. So uh, the, the logistics and the process of, of how Oriviano attempts to ascend are, are really intriguing to me. It's sort of this like knowledge equals power situation where growing his knowledge about the order, the spiritual world helps him ascend further into these sort of spheres and eventually hopes to reach his son um like you said so it sounds like 
I, while I was reading this, I was trying to decide if you had invented this all on your own or if this is like based on some, some something that you researched. But it sounds like maybe that, that comes from something you did research. Yeah. So I did check out books on hermeneutics and sort of, and again, I, it, it was, it's easy to get lost there. So I was trying to figure out as, as someone who's not into mysticism, I was like, how, how, do, how does this work exactly? You know, what, what is he actually doing? What did they believe? Um, and, and what's tricky here too, in some ways is this moment sort of in history is when this text has been found by the Medici, uh, the Medici have sent like monks out to go find books, um, which is a big moment for the Renaissance. And one of the books they find is this book by Hermes Trismegistus that purports to be this lost hidden knowledge from like ancient Egypt that was sitting in this Greek, uh, monastery untouched for hundreds of years. Um, and then everyone's like trying to get someone to copy it for them because I mean, the printing press has been just invented, but you know, everything has to be hand copied for the most part still. Um, and so I think that comes up in this story. I can't remember if I cut that part where he's like waiting for his copy. Um, but um, so, yeah, so I found books on the history of hermeticism and that from based on what I could gather on the, the things that were like, that were in that text itself that I was able to kind of find um, and accounts of it. I think that's sort of what they thought they were doing um, or what, how they were doing. I mean, I think that there's multiple interpretations to it. So I had to kind of figure out like, okay, I'm not going to necessarily be an expert on mysticism because that would take, I don't want to go down that road. <laughs> that would take a lot. Um, but they seem to be as much of an approximation that plausibly what someone in this moment, how they might interpret those teachings um, and apply them. So it's yeah, semi-invented, semi-researched, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like the way it's handled because I feel like, uh, you know, what you just explained is so complicated that it could be, you know, a huge heft in the story, like a big part of the story, but it's all very matter of fact and sort of very succinctly explained and he sits down to do it and this is how he does it and this is what he needs. And yeah, I think you handled it really well. Oh, thanks. I think my favorite thing about this story is, is sort of how it asks us to take very seriously these stakes that I think in our modern world, we might see as sort of fantastical or unreal, you know, like if, if we don't believe in mysticism. So we have this sort of crucial decision you mentioned for Taviano about what to do concerning the omens, and he risks losing, you know, everything, either his family or his this opportunity he thinks he has to, to speak to his son again. And those stakes are so high for him. But, uh, you know, to me, the, the magic of a story is making us feel how important that is, even though it's like really far outside our own experience of reality. Um, you know, like we might not think so, think those things are important, but but we feel it when Otaviano does. Can you talk about that dynamic at all? Yeah, I mean, that was a, I mean, there were a lot of challenges, I mean, I think for this story, I mean, for any story, and a lot of it, it's kind of what you mentioned before, is like how to convey what he's doing without it being like, here's tons of research and it's too complicated and it just like weighs the story completely down. But but yeah, the issue of stakes, I mean, it's something that, um, you know, I think about a lot, especially... In, in teaching writing as well is that the thing I talk about is if, as long as like the main character cares, then usually we'll care. So I think trying to find a way that, that even if we're not on, you know, and maybe some readers are going to be on board for the mysticism and that's, that's fine. Completely fine with me. Um, but if we're not on board with that, if we're kind of like, this is really kind of sort of abstract or abstruse or whatever. Um, but if we feel how much it matters to Octaviano, if it's real to him and he cares and those stakes are there, then and hopefully that's what brings the reader in because then we care. And so um, I kind of feel like that always matters, whether it's a story where things are completely realistic and patently believable 
But if we don't, but if the main character doesn't seem to care, then we're gonna like not gonna care, even if it's believable. Um, so conversely, if it's something where it's like, no, this is like in the quote unquote real world and believable, as long as the main character really cares and we feel that, then like, at least the hope is always that then the reader will come in and also start to care too. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I'm just thinking, like, do you when you're writing, uh, you know, are you making decisions about how to? explain it in a way that that makes sure that we feel that he cares that much i'm just thinking about how how clearly the stakes are presented in the story like that he he has this very clear choice and there's no like wishy-washiness about like what if the omens aren't true it's, it's sort of like he believes the omens are true and he still has to make this decision about whether or not to tell his brother he believes them yeah i mean some of that's in the revision process too i think in that often i feel like um, you know, there's a certain level of the revision where you're trying to clarify those stakes. Like, you know, or I think early on, at least for me, I guess I didn't say you, it's not, I don't know how general it is, but it's sort of finding my way to the story. What is the heart of the story? What will these stakes be? And then with each process kind of refining and refining and, or, 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 or shaving down or, or I don't know, I went to the eye doctor recently, you know, and it's always, they're always checking, you know, giving you the choices of what's the sharper image, right? Getting that sharper image of like, what is it? So I think there were versions of the story where some of that was, kind of fuzzier. Um, so I did try to keep a, a line through it where he, he was still like hoping that maybe the omens wouldn't be true and that maybe the, the ones as he kind of heard more that, that they might be like debatable. But then by the end, it's like, no, these he, he believes they're true. Um, but I think in earlier versions, I may have had more doubt there um, or more wiggle room for him, but it became more like, no, I need to like, like he can't be let off the hook, right? If he's gonna make the choice, he's gonna make the choice and he needs to feel like that choice. So so some of that, I think there was a sense of it from the beginning and some of it, you know, was as you refine the story, kind of like zeroing in on like, how do I make this sharp and distinct um, for him? Yeah, I think that makes sense. I also think, you know, again, with modern readers, like they will have doubts about whether omens are true or not. And so I feel like it, it's even more compelling to just see Ottaviano have, have zero doubts about whether they're that they mean something or not, or whether they mean exactly what his brother thinks they mean. It, it does just sort of ratchet up those stakes again. Yeah. Um, I think my second favorite thing about this story is, is, is CPO, the um, a giraffe that is kept at the court. Um, who uh, You mentioned it when you read from the first part of the story um, and uh, Ottaviano visits him and comes to identify with his, his captivity. And, uh, but there's also just something sort of fun about those scenes with the giraffe and, and almost kind of funny, you know, they, they talk about, you know, has he moved his bowels and that kind of thing. Can you talk about choosing to include the giraffe in this story? Yeah. So that's another element that, uh, comes from the historical record and that mm -hmm. I was reading, um, there's, there's a biography of Federico, uh, like the one really big English language biography of him was written in like the 1840s. Um, and it's this big three volume thing and it lists all this like stuff about his court. And one of the things in there is it says he had a camel leopard and I'm like, what's a camel leopard? And a camel <laughs> leopard is an old fashioned name for a giraffe. Um, <laughs> so so I wanted to bring the giraffe in there. He had other animals too, because it's like the idea of like, I don't know. I, I was like trying to bring in as many, you know, it's hard. You kind of want to, sometimes it's, it's, it's hard. How many details can you stuff in, you know, of like the court, like a lot of the look, you know, the little details too, about like, you know, paying the visit to the abbess or whatever. It's like, that's a thing that Federico did, you know, like apparently like according to this. So I was trying to like find all this stuff or the old men who attended Batista. It's like, yeah, they were, there were, that was part of her court. She had these old men that would hang out 
I don't know what they did, but they were just there. And anyway, so, um, so, so for that reason, I wanted to kind of bring in the draft too, because like the idea of just it's just one other place, I guess, for Ottaviano to go, um, and then just to get the sense of kind of what part of this court would be. And then, yeah, he kind of once Scipio was there, kind of took on a life of his own, and it became one a way for Ottaviano to kind of think about his predicament and kind of project onto Scipio. Um, and then I kept thinking about the, and I can't remember. Um, when I first learned that drafts don't really make much of a noise, like they're kind of, they're not, I don't think they're completely mute. I think under, but I think they're pretty much, sorry, I, have to, I should double check this again, but they don't like really like, they can never really think about it, but they don't really make noises. They just, they're very quiet creatures. Um, and I forget if they can't actually bleat or if they just don't. I forget what the deal is, but I remember that being a thing. So um, I remember thinking about the fact that he might project on, uh, coming up with the idea that he's projecting onto him of like, hey, here's this other creature who's having to live this life that, that he's not made for, just I'm not made for ruling, but he's fine, you know. And then kind of realizing, oh wait, no, actually he can't complain, you know, like he's just here, um, and I'm and I'm and I've been kind of fooling myself in thinking that that he's like actually happy. Um, so uh, yeah, so it just became kind of like another partly Scipio, another way to kind of draw out, give give space for Ottaviano to kind of think through his dilemma, but then also just have this whole other element of the court that's like, yeah, that is kind of fun and, and has that kind of, yeah, as you mentioned, that humor to it. And it kind of gives an outlet to, otherwise it's, I felt like, I mean, there's always risk with the story. I think it was just with this story that it becomes too almost like locked down or suffocated or whatever. And so you needed some kind of something else and that, that became useful for that reason too. Yeah, absolutely. And I just on a logistical level, I think about how when I write things, you know, sometimes you need time for your characters to like reflect and think about things. But obviously that, you know, runs the risk of being very boring or very interior. And and I love just, you know, going to visit the giraffe and sort of having these thoughts. It feels really natural, but but gives those moments like a little more, yeah, like a little more levity or interest. Yeah. So from my, my research before we talked, I, I understand that this type of story, something something very historic, isn't at all unusual for you, but I do feel like it's it's at least sort of unusual for us at the common. We don't see a lot of submissions set in historical times, or if we do, it's at least pieces set in the 20th century, you know? Um, how did you start writing these types of historic stories? Like, what draws you to the past when, when you sit down to write? Yeah, so, um, you know, part of it just goes way back, Um my father was a history teacher, so I had an early fascination with history that I kind of got from him and was always interested in, like, I don't know, history of far-flung places, too, and it's kind of all over the place. Um, I majored in history as well as English in college, so I kind of indulged that interest there. Um, so it's always there, but I never really thought about it once I once I kind of realized, oh, writing, that's what I'm, I want to do, that's what I need to do. I don't think I'd really thought about how history would play a role there. Um until right about when I went to um, the MFA. Um, and that's when I started reading um, writers like um, Jim Shepard uh, or um, Stephen Milhauser, uh, come to mind, there's a lot of others. Um, I mean, it's funny when you think about them, I'm all like, well, I'd already read, read you know, Tony Morrison, and she writes, you know, beloved historical fiction, right? I mean, once you start to look for it, you're like, no, it's, it's all over the place. But that's when I started thinking about, especially in terms of short stories. Um, I think those two writers, especially, I was like, this is really interesting, this thing they're doing. Um, you know, Angela Carter also, although she, her stuff isn't necessarily historical, but there's a kind of quasi-historicalness to um, some of her stories that are kind of set in the, I guess, you know, set in the 19th century, roughly. Um, 
remember those being kind of early things just being kind of blown away like like wow how do you even do this like this is just i don't you know it, it felt like a, an impossible thing to do um but then i um i guess it was really that first semester in graduate school that i was kind of thinking like i don't know how to do this this seems impossible to me but then i kind of thought well look i'm here <laughs> at this mfa program the whole point of being here is to like stretch yourself you know try new things you know figure it out right um, and so that's when I started writing, um, really one of the first stories, I guess, um, you know, I'm trying to think there might've been some other ones, but I guess the first one that really started to take, um, ended up being a title story of, of the story collection Byzantium. It, the first version of it was like completely different. And, and I bet I wrote it for my first workshop. Um, or I mean, it was a second story in that workshop, but the first workshop I was in, in, in grad school, um, and then left it alone for like a year or two and then completely rewrote it later. But, um, but that's when I started taking a stab at like, what would it be like to write a story set in that case, it's set in the seventh century, you know, like, like, what do I need? What do I not need? Um, and I didn't really figure that out right away. Right. It's been in each story, like th this story that's in the common took actually a lot of research. <laughs> um, they don't all take quite as much. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I just kind of got started going with that and then started asking a lot of questions, doing a lot more reading. Anytime someone had come through, um, you know, who wrote in that vein one way or the other, you know, I'd, I would ask them questions or some of the people I worked with in grad school had done that as well. Um, and it was interesting too, I mean, and this is going a little bit farther, but I remember thinking about like, what do you need to write, you know, historical fiction? And I remember asking, like, Stephen Milhauser came to, 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 to visit our program while I was there. And so I asked him, like, what, what do you do? And he was talking about, you know, researching you know what kind of street lamps were in manhattan in like 1894 you know like it's really like detailed stuff and then edward p jones came through and i asked him and he was like well you know they had horses then you know like for him he was like no it's not about the research and i'm like and that too is really instructive and i actually use that story a lot to students when I talk about research because they're both phenomenal writers and they both won the pulitzer they both like have done right. really tremendous like work and work in the historical vein and like completely in some ways different approaches to the like really high level research to like, no, you don't really need that. And it, so I think there's not necessarily one right answer. This is kind of like not really the answer you're, not the question you're answering, but as I've been thinking about what I need and how I kind of developed it, I remember going from the, at the beginning feeling so overwhelmed, like I don't know how you even begin to kind of getting to a point. And it's still a challenge story by story what's needed. Um, but, but kind of realizing there's not really one right answer to how to even do a story like that, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, I love that idea. Um, yeah, I did. I did think of Jim Shepard when I was rereading your story this morning. Um, he's he's a a friend of the common, and we love him. <laughs> um, and I love that you know that thing that he does of taking like very specific historical moments and just turning it just a little bit, and so it's totally unfamiliar. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote a novel of historical fiction and now I'm working on something that's much more contemporary. And I have really found that I, I miss doing that kind of research. Um, those real historical events just felt like a frame I could sort of work within and now I don't have any frame anymore. Right. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, do you approach stories the same, whether they're contemporary or historical, or is it like a totally different process? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think in, in, in no matter in no matter the story, I feel like I'm always trying in the early stages to kind of like find what is the heart or find also what are the limits? Like what is it where does the story begin? Where does the story end? Where is the tension? Uh what is you know, 
if it's if there's a narrator telling the story, why are they telling the story? Can comes can be often helpful helpful thing to think about. Um, and so, in some ways, that process is the same. The only difference, if it's a contemporary story, there might be like less research. But in some ways, I'm still looking for and trying to dig my way toward what is the shape of this thing, you know, and and what will be the thing that kind of holds it together. What is the like either the the great desire, the want that's powering the story and that, that creates that conflict. Um, and again, I think often looking for limits and I think kind of what you mentioned about historical events helps with that. Sometimes they give you the limits, they impose the like, you know, in some ways that's what helped with, you know, this story is I was at first looking at all of Federico's life. And so I was looking for what is the moment where something sparked, what was the moment where things kind of felt maybe a little extra dangerous or something was happening that might throw him off, you know, you know, you know, that, that, I guess that traditional thing, traditional thing you're looking forward to, you know, you don't want the normal day, you want the day that's out of the ordinary, right? So this is the moment when, you know, he's had this great triumph and then this great loss, so things are thrown off for him. So when somebody's looking for that, no matter the time period, I guess, uh, of the story is kind of crucial. Mm, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I also shouldn't make it sound like people don't do research for contemporary stories. There are lots of contemporary stories that would require research. No, that's um, true. It's exactly true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just feeling a little bit, um, yeah, at sea without that, the way that I wrote the first book. <laughs> um, I, so I always love hearing about a writer's revision process. And you so, sort of mentioned it a little bit, but I wonder if you would just tell us a little bit more about revising this piece, like how different it is from the first draft. Is it significantly shorter? I mean, did you do any work with... I think you worked with our editor-in-chief, Jen Acker, a little bit. Yeah, so there was a little bit of work um, after you guys took the story to kind of sharpen some things. Um, but even before that moment, I mean, there, yeah, no, there was, uh, I'm trying to think how long, if I think about the process, I think maybe hmm, five, I mean, this was this story took a long time, at least for a story. I mean, I guess it's always hard to say, because you hear some people talk about stories taking years, but then they mention that, the, the, the years that that story took was like putting the story away for a long time then take, getting back to it. In this case, I feel like, if I remember correctly, it was about four to six months of writing on this story and working on it roughly every day, right? So that was a lot. And a lot of it was because there was so much I was trying to get into it and trying to figure out the sequence. So like sequencing, like, you know, and so, you know every, every story you have to teach the reader how to read it and you have to teach the reader what matters. Um, and you have to do that without the reader really figuring that out. I mean, for the, without that feeling too burdensome to the reader. So it has to be very smooth, right? So that's always a challenge. And this story, it felt like an extra challenge because it's in such a distant place in time. And so a lot of the work in the revision was trying to figure out what matters and what doesn't matter. Like, what does the reader need to know and what do they not need to know? So what can I end up cutting? And then how do I sequence those little details in there? And how do I drop in things? So, you know, so that there's a moment... Um, um, I'm sorry, I'm flipping back to look at it. Where I refer to, you know, uh, Ottaviano, uh, you know, giving uh, uh, assurances to his nieces about, oh, hey, you know, your your mother's soul is ascending through the spheres, right? So that was also very deliberate because I was trying to like start to plant little hints so that later when we get more into the hermeticism, we've already kind of gotten those clues. This, you know, either the reader has kind of looked at it and been like, Oh, it's that's all about, or else they haven't. But then like later it, it, it's that. So like a lot of the revision is trying to figure out how to sequence that. So it feels smooth and, and it's not super clunky. Um, but then also trying to figure out like what even matters. And then of course all the sentence level stuff too, like how does this make sure this actually sounds like decent and not, you know, like horrible. Um, I don't, I'm trying to think how many drafts. I mean, let's see. I, I mean, I can look at my computer really quickly. Um, 
this would not take me very long. Um, uh, cause I'm trying, cause I, I kind of, what I tend to do, my actual process to get to that, since you asked about that as well, is I, you know, I write it all out, you know, just in a word document. Um, and then, um, I print it out and I make revision, my revisions like with a pen. Um, and then I type up those notes and then do it all again until it's done. And often, especially those first revisions, I'm basically rewriting a story by hand. I'm usually cutting pretty much everything. Um, it's usually lucky if 10% of the stuff remains. Um, so it's a lot, and it's really kind of um, sort of gr- grueling work because I'm having to type up my own notes. Uh, also, I have really terrible handwriting that sometimes I can't even read. So that creates problems. Although I've decided that that's kind of an opportunity, like, okay, the, that specific word there maybe doesn't matter. Um, but I do find that kind of like writing it out and then kind of sort of feeding it back through myself as I type it up, it's sometimes helpful as I start to kind of internalize the story and think through how it works and think through what's needed and what's not needed. Um, but let's see. The last draft. Okay. Yeah. So the last number I have on here is 48. Um, so that holy means about holy. 48 drafts. <laughs> that is on the lot. The, that's a lot for me. Um, not not a lot more than usual. I feel like it, it's usually at least 15 to 20 but uh, instances of doing that. But um, And usually toward the end, it's more like really small adjustments. Um, but this one just took a lot because it was a lot to distill um, and a lot to figure out what needed to be in there and what didn't need to be in there. Um, and also refining, we talked before about the stakes, trying to figure out like, wait, what is the heart of this story? Why, why would anybody care? You know, it, it, it can be... Yeah, I mean, it was difficult to try to figure out or think through the fact that, like, yeah, I mean, this is, <coughs> excuse me, it was hard to figure out the right, because this, this is, you know, kind of abstract and so distant from the everyday reader's experience. So trying to figure out a way to make someone actually care about it did take, I think, a lot of the, a lot of the work was there, too. Yeah, you know, when I reread this this morning, I was surprised at how brief it was, because in my memory, it was quite an, a quite a big story, like quite expansive. And I think that's kind of masterful that it feels like this huge world. And in my memory, it was so elaborate and nuanced and complex. But when I actually read it, it's only a couple of pages. And I think that's a a great sign. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's good to hear. Yeah. I always try yeah. to, I, don't know, I, I always hope that there's more being delivered than takes space on the page or something. I don't know how to phrase that. Yeah. yeah. No, I think you achieved it. <laughs> So you're an associate professor of English and creative writing at the University of Toledo. And I was just wondering if you might tell us a little bit about your approach to teaching creative writing or, or what you enjoy about that work. It just always like seems like such a Herculean task to me, this idea of sort of teaching creativity. Yeah, I, you know, it is hard and you, and, and, and this, or how hard to get your head around. I shouldn't, I mean, I don't know if it's, sorry, I'm trying to think, is it hard? I don't know. I think when you think about writing all the time, in some ways it feels easy to have these conversations with students, but um but also at the same time, I guess I've been doing it for a while, so I think it it, it now feels in some ways less daunting. But um, but what you get at is there what is hard and what is is what, what what I think is scary is that question of like you know what can teaching do and what can't it do and, and and you know and one of the things and I just try to like I try to get really meta with the students pretty often in the classroom and trying to say here's why I'm talking about this and here's how this works you know like here's the reason behind this lesson or or whatever. Um, and I try to convey to them the fact that, like, you know, there are a lot of things that you can't, like, like learn, right? There is a way in which writing or any art form, you know, any artist is in some ways self-taught, right? Um, 
And so, you know, you can't like, it's unlike, say, I often pick on accounting because I have accountants in my family, but like you could take an accounting class and you walk away from that class and you know how to do a thing and you can go out and do the thing, right? Um, with writing, it's not that simple. Like, you know, I, we can talk about character and plot and all these things, but then for you to actually figure that out, you kind of have to go out and try it out again and again and again and again. And so in that way, we can talk about principles in the classroom and how these things work and there's things for you to chew on. Um, but it doesn't mean that you're going to walk out the door and then be like, oh, now I can do it. You know, it's it's more like you did have to kind of use those to essentially teach yourself, right? Um, which I think seems critical because otherwise you're just kind of copy copying what's been done versus kind of finding your own way so that you are finding your way to that like more distinctive approach, even as you're maybe using these core principles that seem pretty common to all kinds of stories. And so I try to highlight that in the classroom. I try to mention to them, like that's how this works, right? Don't, don't necessarily expect that. Like if we talk about today about here's, you know, that a character's often, especially your main character needs to want something like wanting things is really important uh, in a story. Um, and, you know, if you look at stories, you might even know, and, and how that's a thing that seems so obvious, but really you kind of have to be told, but that, but that's not like the end of it. Go out and, you know, take a look as you read, think about how that works in stories that you're reading. When someone wants something, what, what how does that empower the story? Note how often in a story you'll actually see the word want, you know, uh, it took me a long time to kind of figure that out to realize that, no, it's, this isn't like some hidden thing that writers try to hide. Often it's there right there in the story, you know, so-and-so wanted this, but you know, this, you know, like it's not, it, it can be pretty explicit. Um, and so I guess I try to emphasize that sense of, that there's that trial and error that, that does go beyond the classroom, but that in the classroom itself, we talk about, you know, those core principles. And then of course, in workshop itself, you look at, you know, how is the story working? Where do we see some of that happening and where do we not see it happening? And, and, and how might that help? I was just going to ask you, cause I'm curious as a professor of English, do you teach text as well? Like uh, what are you teaching this semester? So, yeah, no, I do teach. So actually, um, so my background is I have an MFA, but I also have a PhD in literature. Um, and my position here at Toledo, I'm actually like split between literature and creative writing. So, um, um, I mean, right now it's the summer, so I'm not teaching, but, um, in the fall I'll be teaching two creative writing classes, one sort of the intro creative writing and then one the fiction workshop. But then in the spring I'll be teaching two literature classes, uh, one on 20th and 21st century American fiction, and then one on, um, American literary traditions, which is kind of not really a survey class, but kind of like a themed reading of American literature. Um, but I haven't actually taught lit literature classes just because of certain staffing dynamics in our department. It, when I, I, I you had been teaching more literature than creative writing for my first years here, but the last few years it's been all creative writing, but now I'm getting back to teaching literature again. Oh, interesting. So always our last question for guests is just a question about what, you know, what you're working on now, like what's next from you? Oh yeah. Oh, that's always a question I'm kind of <laughs> hesitant on. I'm, I'm one of those writers right. who really, 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 I used to talk about in progress work, but um, yeah, I was working on a thing <laughs> that I, I have I have gotten to a stopping point with. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Um, and then, um, in some ways, I guess I I feel like I can say stuff about another project. Um, so this story, there are other stories that kind of link with this story that's in the common. Um, so I'm, and I'm interested in trying to pursue, like keep writing more, but I'm, you know, I, I, I would, I'd hope that I could keep linking up more stories with this. Um, but, uh, you know, it's always, 
that's kind of like a, I don't know if that's a thing that I will just, yeah. I'm kind of keeping that as sort of a long-term, like, here and there sort of thing. And I'm not sure, like, when that will end. (laughs) So I don't know. Um, And I'm always anxious to, like, talk about, like, oh, this story I plan to write, you know, five years from now. It's like, yeah, I don't know where where I'll be there. (laughs) Um, So, um, but yeah, so there are, like, uh, two other stories, one that came out last summer and one that's coming out in the fall that kind of link up with this story that's not the common. Um, And then we'll see if more make an appearance. Uh, That's so interesting. I love that this story has siblings out in the world. (laughs) Well, this has been so great. Ben Stroud, thanks so much for joining us. Um, So nice to talk with you about your story. Thanks. And thanks again for having me. Listeners, you can read Ben's story and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.